0: I'm Adam Sifu,
1: and I'm Scott Stern,
0: and we're back with episode 11 of the Symptom Diagnosis Podcast. For those of you who've been with us thus far, you no longer need the podcast intro, so we'll dive right in. Our topic this week is dizziness. Scott, you're the expert of the day. Do you have a case to present mm-hmm. to
1: me? I do. Let's see if you can figure it out. I think you had troubles last week. I don't want to you know, say anything further, but that's okay.
0: I thought I aced the last one. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit worried, because I know how much you love dizziness, and I know how pedantic you can be, and so I feel like I'm going to have to cut you short today.
1: You will have to cut me short today. I'll try to be clear and succinct, but that's almost impossible.
0: Okay, what you got for me? Anyway, so
1: many years ago, I saw a young man with dizziness. He came in the office. He said he'd been there for about two weeks. It wasn't horrible, but it was persistent. He described it further as a kind of a spinning sensation that was there most of the time, and worse if he moved his head. He denied any other symptoms like you know headache, double vision, ataxia, weakness, or hearing problems. i never had this before, so uh, I'm going to ask you a question now. So, given that, what would you want to what would you want me to check on his physical exam?
0: Oh, I'm not going to get to the physical exam yet. I got more questions. All right, me. go ahead. What do you want to know? Um, so, I guess first of all, is this the first time he's ever felt this, or has he had this in the past?
1: Yeah, no. The last two weeks has been the only time.
0: Okay, and two weeks. It sounds like from what you said, he's really had this dizziness for two weeks. Um, It's not that it's been like intermittent episodes for two weeks.
1: Right. Well, that's a great distinction, and it's a really critical one because many people have multiple episodes will say they've had it for two weeks, but he's had it pretty constantly for two weeks. It's there most of the time.
0: Okay. Uh, History of migraines in this guy?
1: No history of migraines.
0: Okay. Um, And he told me, no headache, no double vision, no ataxia, no weakness, and hearing problems, nothing.
1: What was that? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no hearing problems.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess those that's probably the history I want. And you said he's a young guy, I'm going to say 30s, 40s, something like that. Right,
1: and it's 30s, early 30s, actually. Okay,
0: okay. Um, so I'll tell you what I'm thinking, and then I'll tell you what I want to do on exam. Go ahead. I, I mean, so... I guess I should ask you the obvious question. I've sort of made an assumption here. Uh, you described this as a spinning sensation. So I'm going to say that this sounds like vertigo to me. That's what it sounded like to me okay. as well. Okay. And I'm sure you'll get to talking about the kinds of dizziness. Um, I will indeed. I've heard you tell that, say that lecture before. But so I'm, I'm going with vertigo here. And so usually, young person comes in with dizziness. I'm thinking BPPV, uh, benign positional benign benign paroxysmal positional (laughs) vertigo Um, if I can't come up with that it's going to be a long podcast Um, I usually think that's you know that's what it is because when people come in with acute vertigo that's usually what it is but this actually does not sound like this um because that's usually, you know, it may go on for two weeks, but as you mentioned, it's usually like short, really intermittent periods and it's really um, it's really induced by position. This doesn't sound like this. So this actually makes me a little bit worry, more worried. Um, I think this probably sounds like, you know, what people refer to as an acute vestibular syndrome. Um, it's a little subacute, but I'd still probably go with that differential diagnosis. Um, I'm kind of reassured that there aren't what I refer to as as near signs, kind of other neurological um, symptoms. We haven't gotten to signs yet that would make me think of some horrible central structural disaster. Um, but that's still a possibility. Um, so what I would do with this guy is if I didn't walk in with him, I'd, I'd have him stand up. I would do a Romberg. I'd have him walk around. I'd see what his gait is like. I would do a good cranial nerve exam. Um, and for the last few years, I've, I've gotten into doing this whole HINTS exam thing, um, which I also expect you'll talk to me about, um, which is the head impulse, um, A look at nystagmus and then a look at skew deviation. Um, And those are going to be important for me figuring out does this sound like it's more peripheral, which it's probably still much more likely to be, um, um, or if it's central, which would be unusual given the guy's age, but a possibility.
1: So that's great i just want to point out several other things that you did cognitively that were really uh terrific so one of them was we often have an idea right away with a complaint what's most likely in this case a young man with acute vertigo we definitely think of bppv first and foremost but then what you did is you said, wait a minute, it doesn't really sound like that. And I would say one of the most common errors that I'm sure you see all the time with residents and students as well is to come up with that idea, whatever their first idea is, and then the anchor to that, independent of whether other things really are not consistent with it. And you're exactly right that the persistent vertigo that's going on over time is not consistent with BPPV, nor is the fact that it's Mm -hmm. there all the time and it's just made worse with movement so we'll come back to that but i really like the fact that you challenge that initial impression and say wait it's not consistent and then you got to the time course and thought about the acute vestibular syndrome which we'll come back to so i agree with all of that that's the exactly right thinking
0: we should probably say one thing which you just said is that um I i don't know if i've ever seen a patient with dizziness whose dizziness is not made worse with movement
1: Right. So yep. I, I was going to come back to that later, okay. but it's a pearl to remember. So um, one of the mistakes with BPPV, as you're alluding to, is we say it's positional. Everybody who has vertigo is made worse when they turn around. Okay. The question for BPP, the thing that is the hallmark of BPPV is it's not there when they're resting and it's triggered by turning. Yeah. Right. So it's not simply enough to say it's made worse with movement but rather for BPPV, is it absent when they're still, and does it get triggered by movement? That's the hallmark of BPPV, as well as it's brief. Great. So back to him. Um, So I did do a careful neurological exam, and on the cranial nerve exam, uh, he did have nystagmus that occurred when he looked to the right, as well as nystagmus when he looked to the left. Um, Otherwise his cranial nerves were intact, his gait was normal, his finger to nose uh, was normal as well. And um, I think we should stop there and I'll come back to the HINTS exam later Okay. we will get overwhelming.
0: Okay. <laughs> Sounds fine. Not to, not to put too much on the table. Um, so let's leave the case for a few minutes um, and remember, Scott. A few minutes. A few minutes. <laughs> and um, we're going to take a deep dive into dizziness. And so we usually do this by talking about five key points. Five, not ten. <laughs> um, so, what are your five key points? And I'll try to I'll do, try do, to do, butt do in. Do you have a timer
1: yeah. on you there? Sure. Has everybody got their coffee?
0: We gave up on the bell because it was making too much noise. So, all
1: right. So the first the first issue with dizziness is it can mean multiple complaints. It can really mean vertigo, a sense of spinning, disequilibrium, a sense of imbalance, near syncope, and some people can't describe any of them. And the reason you want to focus on one of them if you can is because the differential diagnosis for any one of those is smaller than the combined group. And there's really two ways we get at that. The first is to ask the patient to actually describe the sensation in as much detail as they can so we get a sense about whether they're talking about falling or spinning or passing out. And the second uh, helpful point is ask them what their trigger is. If the trigger is typically turning over that's much more suggestive of a vertiginous situation. If the trigger is walking it's much more suggestive of an imbalance and if the trigger is standing up it's much more suggestive of orthostatic hypotension. That's the first point.
0: I like that. I'm going to start saying that dizziness doesn't have a differential diagnosis, right? Vertigo has a differential diagnosis. Near syncope has a differential diagnosis. Disequilibrium has a differential diagnosis. And of
1: course, the only problem is there is a subset of folks who really can't describe it well. And then, unfortunately, the differential is the combined loss. That's why you want to work so hard to figure that out. Right. Right? The second point is patients who have vertigo, it's really critical to separate out, to identify the small subgroup of people of something that's life-threatening in the brainstem that's causing it from the overwhelming majority who have some inner ear process that's benign. And at the very minimum, that requires a careful neurological review of symptoms as well as a cerebellar exam a cranial nerve exam with careful attention to eye movements. And that whole thing only takes two minutes. Once you get good at a cranial nerve exam and a cerebellar exam and you walk the patient, like you said, and you check finger to nose and a rhomburg, it doesn't take any time, but you need to do
0: it. Right. Um, The hard part is is that the central causes of vertigo are really rare, Um, so there's not a lot of feedback here because you can be lazy and do a crappy job and usually do just fine, right? Um, and it was interesting. I read I read your wonderful chapter in <laughs> Symptom to <laughs> Diagnosis. Um, and, and actually, you know, the central causes by the literature are more common than I would think they are and maybe that they actually are in practice.
1: Well, there's no doubt that cerebellar stroke and the brainstem strokes are one of the more common ones that right. actually manifest this way. And so there, there are significant costs of actually malpractice right. because people go to the emergency room when they get some dizziness and they're sent out with BPPV. Right. We in primary care don't see that so often. Right.
0: I was going to say, I, I, I'll bet that, the, that the, the literature out there as far as kind of incidence is inflated. Because the denominator's wrong? Because most of the PPV, right, either people ride it out at home or we see it in primary care and nobody's aware of it. That's true. But it's very different if you're in the emergency room. Totally true.
1: And so just a, a fi- the final point on that is anybody who has any central nervous system symptom or sign, of course, now you need really prompt brainstem imaging. And depending on what you're thinking about, that's either an MRI or the CT scan. But remember that the brainstem is very packed. If something goes wrong in there, you're really at risk for dying. So you're suggesting that brainstem injury is a bad thing? I am. I am. It's
0: really going out of limb.
1: I know. You know, I'm going to take that stretch. Um, the third point in patients who do have vertigo, where you think it's peripheral or there's nothing obvious in the central nervous system, that is obvious on review systems or obvious on neurological exam, is the time course can be helpful in the differential. You know, if it's very brief and it's clearly triggered by movement, it's almost always BPPV. and That's clearly what we see the most of. On the other hand, if it lasts minutes to hours, there's a different differential. Uh, Meniere's disease often associated with hearing loss or fullness, a TIA, Um, and you mentioned migraines. So vestibular migraines can also cause vertigo that lasts for hours. Um, People in whom it's lasting for days or longer have, are referred to having what you'd mentioned earlier, which is the acute vestibular syndrome for which the differential diagnosis is really vestibular neuritis or a stroke. And I'm going to say this later, but I want to emphasize it that you can have a brainstem stroke, and the only symptom be actually uh, vertigo without
0: anything else. So it's pretty scary. I find time course really helpful, um, and this next statement will probably piss you off, so you can you can yell at me if if you want to. Um, you know, if, if your history is 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 consistent with BPPV, right? In that someone comes in and they say boy, you know, for the last couple of days, I've had these intermittent, really brief episodes of vertigo, you know, usually when I turn over in bed or when I turn my head. That history for me, because BPPV is so common, overwhelms findings on the physical exam. So I might have a physical exam, which is, oh, it's not perfectly consistent with BPPV, but it's probably still BPPV. Well,
1: the only thing I would add to that, depends on what you mean by perfectly consistent. So the Dix-Hall Pike maneuver, which is where you lay someone down and look for nystagmus when you both lay them down and sit them up is often hard to interpret and not easy to perform. And so, if that's not perfect, I don't, you know, get very upset. On the other hand, if they had neurological abnormalities, sure. that would uh, trump, for lack of a better
0: word, uh, you know, that would make me worried. That 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 is a great point, and that's what I was saying. You know, we've we've seen. You know, good Dix Hall pikes, where where the person has this rotatory nystagmus. That you're like, yeah, I got to do that again so I can video it. But of course, it <laughs> fatigues, so you don't get a good video the next time. Um, but you're right, right. If if the person has skewed deviation, then it's a different that's story. Right. So the fourth point is when we have this acute vestibular
1: syndrome. Again, that's this prolonged vertiginous episode lasting days or more. That's and they have a normal neurological exam. You shouldn't be done yet. And that's where the HINTS exam is actually as good as an MRI. And the HINTS exam is a physical exam that's worth describing because most people don't understand it well. Oh, I guess you're going to describe it, huh? I guess. <laughs> Let's hear it. Okay, so HINTS, H-I-N-T-S, is an acronym, which stands for H-I is for head impulse, N is for nystagmus, and T-S is for test of skew. Now, nystagmus, I'm, I'll go out of order so that people don't get overwhelmed. Nystagmus is pretty easy. There are some types of nystagmus that should make you worried. If it's prolonged and the person keeps beating, that suggests a central process. If it doesn't fatigue when you can repeat the maneuver, that suggests a central process. If it's bilateral, it suggests a central process. Or if it's upward going, it suggests a central process. You see any of those, you're done. You need to image the brain
0: stuff. My daughter broke her wrist a few years ago. Okay, and she to reset her wrist, they gave her ketamine in the emergency room, and she got vertical nystagmus. Nice. And you don't know how much it freaks you out to see your kid have vertical nystagmus.
1: I bet it does. Well, I'll have to try that next time I have ketamine and take myself take a movie of myself. One
0: more point about nystagmus, you know there. one can have nystagmus normally, right? Sort of a feeds, little bit, a few right? points, right. And so nystagmus is one of those things like examining a thyroid exam, uh, examining a thyroid that often just is part of sort of a quote-unquote, routine physical exam and I'm not really looking for things, you know, I'll check people's cranial nerves just to get a sense of, like, what is normal nystagmus? What is a normal thyroid exam?
1: Right. As we emphasize, it is important to do regular exams on many, many patients so that you have a good sense of what's normal.
0: Probably for your own benefit rather than the patient's benefit. Right. Well, that's true, but it
1: only takes a minute. Um, test of skew (TS) is also easy. So we often see patients where they have horizontal uh, misalignment of their eyes, where one eye looks like it's looking at you and the other one is not on the same horizontal plane, but pointing outward or pointing inward (exotropia, right? esotropia). That's not te- that's not skewed. That's not an abnormal test of skew. An abnormal test of skew is the same phenomenon, but when it's vertically displaced, so that one eye is on the right hor- vertical plane and the other is not on the right vertical plane. Sometimes you can uh, find this by doing cover-on-cover tests where you cover one mm-hmm. eye and then you cover the other eye quickly and you see that the first eye moves to realign. Well, test when you have vertical displacement, that's abnormal. And that will be an abnormal test of skew and also requires
0: CNS imaging. And when you see that, it's really abnormal, even if it's small. Um. Absolutely. Um,
1: The final test is the
0: one that's hard
1: for people to understand, um, and that is um, the head impulse test. The head impulse test is testing the vestibular ocular reflex. So in normal life, if we're walking, we can also carry something, we can grab something because our vestibular system is letting our body know where where our head is and all of that is coordinating. So one way to test the vestibular ocular system is to have a patient look at your nose and then you put their, their head in your hands and you, ra- you warn them, but you rapidly turn their head and ask them to keep looking at your nose. If you have a normal vestibular ocular system and you turn someone's head, their eyes stay fixed on your nose because that's what that reflex does. But if they have vestibular neuritis and the vestibular system is messed up, then when you turn their head, their eyes come off target, come off their nose. They realize it's come off and they rapidly saccade back to your nose. That is an abnormal head impulse test. Now here's the part that's hard to remember. What you want in somebody with the acute vestibular system is you'd much rather them have vestibular neuritis than a stroke. So what you want is an abnormal head impulse test because that's consistent with vestibular damage. So a normal head impulse test in somebody with the acute vestibular system is worrisome. So to summarize the HINTS exam, what would make you worry is abnormal tests of skew, right? Abnormal nystagmus or a normal head impulse test. You got it. Well said. Well, thanks. How long was that? Are you all dead out there? I'm just hoping that your <laughs> fifth point
0: is really brief. Really short.
1: If somebody is near syncope, evaluate them like If they had syncope, look to a, one of our prior podcasts.
0: Yes. Is that podcast number
1: three? I, I, I
0: think know. it might have been. Okay. Let's get back to the case. Okay. So we were um, we've got this guy... Young guy, about two weeks of vertigo at this point, um, pretty much consistent through the two weeks. A little bit worsened with exercise, and um, he didn't really tell me anything much else interesting. And our exam was normal until we got to the hints exam. You were But he up.
1: also had.
0: Oh right, he had a little bit of nystagmus in both directions. In both directions. Which 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 is concerning. And I think that if I was at this point in the exam, I was I would be thinking vertigo on my schedule. I was hoping it's BPPV. I found immediately that it's not BPPV. I'm thinking, well, young guy, probably vestibular neuritis. And then I see the nystagmus. I'm like, uh-oh, I think actually this might be something other than vestibular neuritis. And you're going to give me a chance to give you a differential later, but I want to hear about this HINTS exam first. Yeah,
1: so he did not have any
0: abnormal tests of skew.
1: The nystagmus, like I said, was abnormal. And the head impulse test, frankly, this was 30 years ago. I didn't know about the head impulse test, so frankly, I didn't do it.
0: You slouch. It's like when you didn't do COVID (laughs) for the cough, fever, restaurant. I'm sorry, I didn't know. I'm going to get a new partner here. So do we we have an answer? Yes, we have an answer for what he had. Okay. Um, So I guess at this point, so... The head impulse cells would be important, honestly, at this point, because, you know, vestibular neuritis is, is more common than the central processes, you know, certainly presenting in primary care. Um, I think that if this guy had an abnormal head impulse test, I would say, you know, even with the nystagmus, I think this is probably vestibular neuritis since there's nothing else I'm going to go with that. If this guy had a normal head impulse test, then that would be easily enough to sort of push me over and say, "There's as, as unlikely it is, there's something bad going on here. And then I'd have to think. And I'd be like, 30-year-old guy with something, you know, kind of posterior circulation, brainstem issues. Um, what would it be? I guess he could have a tumor. He could, for some reason, have had a stroke. Um, he could have an aneurysm, which is maybe the most likely in a young guy. Um, But either way, maybe the differential is less important, but you'd say this guy needs to be imaged. Um, Given the dozen of headaches, I'm not really thinking about like hemorrhage. Um, I'd probably do an MRI, MRA, and I'd like want that now, you know. I'd call in a favor, and if I had to send him to the emergency room to get it, I would do that. So that's great. I think the real
1: point is if you think it's central, there's a lot of rare things and obscure things. The real question is, does he need imaging? And the bi-directional nystagmus really sells that, even though I didn't, and I had the same thinking you did. I'm like, this is a young guy, he's healthy. I was surprised he didn't look like BPPV. And I must have consulted several texts multiple times and I kept reading bi-directional nystagmus (laughs) was abnormal. And I kept going back and looking at him and proving to myself he had it and I wasn't imagining it and going back to the texts and saying, okay, that's supposed to be abnormal. So I did arrange for an MRI and believe it or not, So the point is, you need to know when to image, not what he had. And you knew when to image. And his imaging showed demyelination in the brainstem,
0: as well as some other areas in the brain. Interesting. Not on my differential diagnosis. So I think if you see that, you got to be thinking multiple sclerosis. He's probably not a bad age, but he's a he, which makes it a little less likely. Um, and then at this point, you know, he may actually, with this alone, make the diagnosis. You could do more specific tests, LP, a right. good um,
1: ophthalmological Right. Way. And I just want to point out to everyone who's listening, it's not that the idea that you're going to find, you're going to know rare things when you see this. There's no way I was thinking about MS at all when he came in. But knowing their proper evaluation gets you there, knowing that you should look at those extractive movements carefully. So anyway, an interesting follow-up for him is he didn't want to believe it. He was seen by neurology. They said this looks like MS. And he was actually lost a follow-up. And he came back six months later incontinent because now he had spinal cord involved. Wow. Interesting. Sad, but
0: interesting. Yeah. Okay, um, so we're going to move on to the last part of the podcast, which is fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. Um, Scott, I'm going to let you keep talking. Um, you got a, <laughs> Sorry. You got a oh fingerprint to throw at me? I do.
1: Actually, the HINTS exam has a positive likelihood ratio for CNS disease of 64. Astronomically, high. it's also as also sensitive as an MRI in the acute vestibular situation, right. 98% sensitive.
0: So I would say, can we say that's
1: pathognomonic? I would say that's pathognomonic. Um,
0: and, and it's supported with this case here, right? Yes. So if you see it, it's a diagnosis. It's a fingerprint. Um, I'm going to go back to BPPV. Uh, you're going to be the zebra here. I'm going to be the horse. Um, the nice thing about BPPV is it's actually very easy to rule in. So if someone presents with vertigo that's recurrent, um, vertigo that's brief, and vertigo that's induced by head movement, um, and there's always the caveat in most of these rules that's not attributable to something else. The likelihood ratio for that is 11, so really diagno- diagnostic. For all you people who are listening, if you're coming up with rules, please leave out the not attributable to something else I, I know, because I it's the that. stupidest thing. In the <laughs> I world. know,
1: right? I mean, right? You've kind of just proven right.
0: It's like so. If you've right. made the diagnosis, it is, it your isn't. diagnosis is right.
1: correct. Right.
0: Stupid. But anyway, those those three right. things, at least, are very predictive. All right, should we go into common misconceptions? Let's do it.
1: I think um, the first one I would mention, you've already mentioned, which is that just because vertigo is positional doesn't mean it's BPPV. It has to have all the things that you just said, and that's the most common clinical mistake I make, I hear from folks.
0: So let's add to all that wheezes is not asthma, all that's vertiginous is not BPPV. All that's positional and vertiginous okay. that's is not it. BPPV. Good, thank you. All positional vertigo is not BPP. There we go. Okay. Um, So my... um, (laughs) um, What are we up to here? What am I talking about? Disequilibrium is uninteresting. We're talking about common (laughs) misconceptions. Um, This is a weird misconception, which is probably why I had trouble remembering what what section we're under. Um, My my, misconception is that disequilibrium is uninteresting. You know, people often say, ah... Another dizzy older person how, how how boring is that I actually find it very interesting and, and why it's interesting is that it takes so much for us to feel balanced in space, right We need our vision we need our perception. Um, you need you know we need our we need our equilibrium centers um, in the brain and so much can go wrong and as we get older, a lot of those things go wrong. Um, so very often when you're seeing elderly people, they will be like, ah, you know, I'm dizzy. And you'll get a history and you'll find out they're off balance. And then it's kind of neat to like explore with them their history and their physical exam to say what's making them feel that way. And it, it's it's often actually rewarding because a lot of those things are fixable, you know. Maybe you find out that they've got a little bit of proprioceptive loss, which could be approved with physical therapy or with B twelve supplementation, right? Maybe it's their eyes, and they just need better glasses, or maybe it's their eyes at night because they're not seeing well, and they need to remember to turn on the light when they go to the bathroom. So um, disequilibrium, it's interesting. <laughs>
1: You know, the funny thing about that is there's a
0: remarkable lack of literature on
1: this. Yeah. You know, it's often been referred to as multiple sensory deficits because right, right. your vision's a little off, your proprioception's a little off, right. your neuromuscular system's a little off. You go to look that up, there's like nothing. No, there's nothing. There's nothing.
0: Um, and it's often that, that all those things are a little bit off, and then there's something else, you know, like, and you have two glasses of wine. Right. Her, you know? Right.
1: Meds are definitely a big player. And meds are a right? big player.
0: All, All right. right, so pet peeves. Pet peeves. We love our pet peeves. We do.
1: Start us up. Well, I've already said my first one. I'm going to skip the first one because we've said it. I'll go to my second one, which is not walking the patient. I can't tell you how many times I've had a patient come to me from the emergency room and the neurological exam from the visit says the neurological exam was normal. And I asked the patient, I said, so did they walk you? And they said, no, nobody got me out of bed. I'm like, then give me a break. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, You have to walk the patient. It's complicated, as you've already said, and it's a real good test of a whole lot of neurological function.
0: Right. And it's, it's, it's also in this, you know, someone who I get up to walk, who stumbles, who I have to grab onto, that overrides pretty much everything else for me, right? Because you can correct me, but I've never seen someone with BPPV or vestibular neuritis like, not be able to walk or well, actually there's
1: data about that. Yeah. So that's a good point. So people with BPPV often complain of imbalance, but they can almost always walk. Yeah. If you get somebody who's literally falling, you need to be looking at the cerebellum yeah. for
0: sure. Right. Right. Especially obviously if it's acute, right. Um, my pet peeve and anybody who's listened to me talk in the past knows this one is I think, Doctors at every level very often describe people who are complaining about dizziness as poor historians. Um, it's important to remember that when we take histories, we are the historian, right? The patient right. Is, is telling us their story. Um, and dizziness is really hard to describe. And if you've never had dizziness and tried to describe it to someone, it's very hard to describe. Um, um, you know, every chapter that's ever been written about this, including yours, I think appropriately says, you know, Tell me about your dizziness. And then you're just supposed to shut up and let them talk, right? Um, but it's hard because a lot of people can't describe it. And and so I sometimes, once I've done that, I have to help people a little bit, right? And I'd say, oh, is there turning? Is there light aheadness? Does your vision gray out? Right. You know, to try to lead them a little bit.
1: Um, One thing I've done with those folks yeah. is ask them to say, what? when did you have it last? And then ask them to actually think about that episode and describe that to me. That's a to point. kind of anchor it, you know, oh, it was Tuesday. Well, what happened? And again, you got to shut up, right?
0: And right. say, that's great. Right. And that's, that's probably a, an important pearl for every kind of history taking, right? Is, is let's focus in on one episode and take me through that almost minute by minute. Right. Exactly. Good point. Okay. We're up to clinical pearls. Okay. Well, we've hit
1: the guy. first one, so I can skip that. Um, the next one I had was double vision. So interestingly enough, double vision suggests that your nerve, that your eyes aren't aligning, right? And that there's a problem with cranial nerves, three, four, six. So it's a very important symptom. But many people I've seen who have complained of double vision, when I look at their eyes with just my eyes looking at their eyes, they looked the aligned. And I think the issue is that I'm not as able to discern very small changes in their alignment compared to what their brain can discern. So I take, I, everyone I've seen who complained with double vision, who really said I saw double, it was always a serious problem. Um, actually, the only time it wasn't a serious problem is my mom who complained of double vision, and it turned out she'd had Botox for her wrinkles, and the Botox in her wrinkles for, around her eyes had leaked into her eye, caused some t- tiny paralysis, but trust them when they say they have double vision, even if it doesn't look like their eyes are discounting.
0: I don't know if what I'm about to say is true, but it's something I've always used. Probably because my neurological exam is not the best. Is that is that to a great extent, you know, subjective neurological symptoms are more sensitive than objective ones. Right, right I think that's right. Um, and so, if your patient is, you know, people will yell at me for saying believable, but if you can sort of trust their symptoms, um, that's more important than oh, I can't, I can't get out sensory deficit. No, I think that's totally true. I had a funny case of uh, diplopia recently that I, I couldn't figure it out, and there was nothing else, and I sent the person to neuro-ophthalmology, and it turns out that the person's glasses were just like all bent out of shape, oh and my goodness. I felt oh, like such an idiot. That's so funny. <laughs> well, I have one that was an aneurysm. It's in the book.
1: Wow. Yeah. So get okay. a pearl.
0: Yeah. So my pearl um, is, this is sort of a scary one, um, and it goes to vestibular neuritis, which we've always, uh, which we've talked about already, is that if you take people with cerebellar strokes as, um, as your patient population, the most common misdiagnosis in those people. So, so someone has a cerebellar stroke, they're misdiagnosed, they're usually misdiagnosed as vestibular neuritis. Um, so I think this is just one of those things that says, boy, you know, even if you say this is a vestibular syndrome, um, I think there's probably vestibular neuritis because that's common and it's the right patient, you know, maybe it's a younger patient, um, absolutely, absolutely make sure that's what it is. Do the HINTS exam. And if it's an older person, right, if this is a 65 year old woman with 20 years of diabetes and hypertension, man, you gotta be so sure that it's not something worse. Absolutely. That's
1: for sure. I mean, you have to have just a low threshold for imaging those folks, right? Okay. And I suppose um, our last clinical pearl, I'll steal your uh, last one, is that in patients who have headache and vertigo, you need to assume it's a cerebellar hemorrhage. And I want to emphasize something about cerebellar problems, which is that people can herniate. If you miss them, what happens is either from hemorrhage or from a stroke, they can go out and not look bad, but then the swelling can cause death. So anybody who comes (laughs) Well, that's true, right? Yeah. So anybody with headache and vertigo—that's where you do a CAT scan acutely because you can do it quickly, and hemorrhage is right. easy to detect. But you—you you need to take that very seriously. Right.
0: I guess you know the the things to think about is is to get you out of that maybe sometimes. And I and I, I absolutely support everything you say. And herniation and death generally a bad thing. Um, <laughs> um, you know, some people sometimes people will say headache. Um, But it's ear fullness, right? Sure. Um, And so that might be the one time that you're like, oh, you know, it's it's actually not a headache; it's it's ear fullness. I and I got to say, I am one other time that you might have headache and dizziness would be, you know, vertiginous migraines, which is a diagnosis that I'm very suspicious of, worried of. I don't think I've ever made that diagnosis comfortably without imaging?
1: I I'm have not either. So just to elaborate on that a little bit, yeah. the data says that people who have vertiginous migraines, the vertigo can precede the migraine occur concurrently or after. But in order to make that diagnosis, you need an incredibly good history over time that right. this has been the pattern they've had. Right. So if somebody was come to the emergency room and it's their first headache, even if it sounds migraines and they have vertigo, you have to image them. Right. That would not be sufficient.
0: Is that the case even if they have a history of migraines?
1: It, unless they've had a clear... Yeah, because migraines are common, right? right? right. So unless they've had a clear association of migraines and vertigo, you shouldn't
0: make the diagnosis. Got it. That's, that's, a, that's a good pearl. Oh, An and cool. add-on pearl. An add-on. We hope you found this episode of the Symptoms Diagnosis Podcast useful and a bit enjoyable. A reminder that the cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptoms, Diagnosis, and Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how we think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print, on your handheld device, and in a new, fully searchable mode via the Access Medicine website available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. The music for this, the S2D Podcast, is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez.